Today on the Youth Element, we are digging deeper into social movements in Taiwan and Hong Kong. How do youth feel about politics in their local environments? The Taiwan I used to know before I left for the U.S. was more of a, you know, leave the politics to the politicians. How has politics changed in the post-social movement era? So it's like an enlightenment after the umbrella movement. Uh, more college students or more teenagers are starting to get involved in politics. Where do youth look next moving forward? I think uh, Hong Kong is very, you can say, even more separated because of the localism, but also kind of more united. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Justin. And I'm Linda. And you're listening to The, the Youth, Youth Element, Element, a podcast series on East Asia's millennials. Over the course of five weeks, we travel to five cities in East Asia. Shanghai, Taipei, Hong Kong, Tokyo, and Seoul. To listen to the voices of millennials and learn more about contemporary East Asia through their views and the stories of their own lives. Stay with us on The Youth Element. Welcome to part two of our three-part series on political engagement. Previously, we discussed youth politics through the organization SEALS in Japan and how much of society is still afflicted by the political allergy. But to give our listeners a more comparative perspective, we're going to look over to Taiwan and Hong Kong, where allergy season seems to have passed. But before we get into that, here's a quick PSA from our friends in Taipei. There's one thing I want people to know is that Taiwan is not Thailand and people should stop getting the two confused. They're both very different places. Well, if young people in Taiwan had one clear message to tell us, it was definitely not to confuse Taiwan with Thailand, a mistake that actually happened before here in Vancouver. Back in 2014, the Metro put in one of its headlines that a military coup had occurred in Taiwan when they actually meant Thailand. Yikes. Obviously, many people weren't happy about this. Well, Taiwan has been picking up a lot more traction in the media lately. Maybe less people might be making this error now? Yeah, but it's one thing to know Taiwan is a place. But CNN and CBC headlines aside, does the average person really know Taiwan beyond a phone call with President Trump and its international presence beyond geopolitics? Okay, yeah, I get what you mean. So how can we make a more concerted effort to, you know, really peer into Taiwanese politics of today? Cue the youth element. I'm listening. Okay, so I've personally been interested in the politics of Taiwan for about four to five years now. And one thing that I found is that listening to the voices of young people provides a very insightful glimpse into what's happening domestically. And when we're talking about who's on the streets protesting in Taiwan, it comes from a very specific cohort of youth, a generation that grew up in a democratic society. And this is important to note because their parents' generation grew up under a time of authoritarian rule. It wasn't until martial law was lifted in 1987 that the process of democracy began on the island. And this difference in political systems has created a generational divide in that the millennials of today approach the politics and social issues from a very different perspective from their parents. I think the post-80s and the early 90s are, I mean, they share the same view and um, uh, focus are the same, but the people growing up in the 70s and 60s are definitely more passionate about democracy itself, yeah, and how democratic Taiwan is. So a lot of them spend their lives fighting for democracy. But now it's a different story. A lot of the 
people my generation or a lot of the, the youth who are interested in politics or joining uh, having a political career will have to face a future that's um, helped Taiwan be more visible internationally. So that was William, a young journalist and writer based in Taiwan. I think it's safe to say that the generational divide between millennials and their parents appears to be much more pronounced. At least this seems to be especially the case along the lines of political views and questions of identity. And yeah, I know millennials everywhere can probably relate to generational differences, whether it's experienced at home, in the workplace, or in other social settings. But what's sort of unique to Taiwan's situation is that, in addition to having grown up under vastly different political systems from their parents, Taiwan's generational divide also stems from the reality that most millennials were born and raised in Taiwan, with the understanding of home being nowhere else but in Taiwan. So in other words, they don't have that same sort of relationship to China that their parents' or grandparents' generations might have. But don't take this from us. Here's Jennifer, someone who has personally experienced this generational difference. It was, it was actually quite interesting because I never thought about it like this. But people my age, around, you know, well, I'm, I'm 24, so like 30, like below 35, are what people call like natural-born Taiwanese. So because we were born here in Taiwan, we don't have the concept of, like my dad has the concept of going back to his old home, which is in China, because even though he was born in Taiwan, my grandparents came from China and his oldest brother was born in China. So he still has a concept of when and if they go back to their old home, quote unquote, it's to China. Whereas for me, I have I have no ties with that country, especially since I'm I'm not close with my grandparents either. So for me, going back home is just it's just here, and that to me was it was it was really interesting, and I th I think it's also now that I, th I think of it, it's very prominent now. You can see usually in the past during Chinese New Year's there would be a lot of like plane tickets out of Taiwan, but now like in recent years. There's been a lot more people staying in Taipei because this is this is where the where young people have made their homes, you know, where they were born, where they were raised, and this is their laojia, to, so to speak. So for Chinese New Year's, when they go home, they just stay here. And Jennifer's case is just one interesting example of how being born in a different place than your parents has inevitably changed how some youth in Taiwan understand cross-strait relations. Of course. Other families have spent multiple generations in Taiwan, as well as the island's indigenous people. But regardless of which view, youth from all walks of life are going through the same process of making sense of their own identities and their relationships to their society. Exactly. And couple all of these already complex questions of citizenship and national identity with access to social media, global news, and the whole shebang of puberty and the quarter-life crisis most of us will or already have gone through. And voila, you're presented with all the ingredients needed to create a volatile cocktail of angsty millennials. And really, all that's left is for one event to really shake and stir up the young and restless into action. Political action. This is basically how the Sunflower Movement erupted in 2014. A movement that stands out as one of Taiwan's most notable political protests in recent years. And this was pretty much entirely orchestrated and led by youth in Taiwan. But what was it exactly? Yes, as we all know from the headlines we hear about Taiwan, it had something to do with keywords like economic interdependence and China. But what was it really about? 
And what was it that riled up youth in particular? In a nutshell, the Sunflower Movement was a 24-day occupation of Taiwan's parliament. The most immediate reason for the occupation was that students were protesting against the passing of two new trade agreements with China. The first was the Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement, which some just call ECFA. And the second was the Cross-Strait Services Trade Agreement, commonly abbreviated as the CSSTA. Both of these intended to liberalize Taiwan's economy by opening up certain markets to China. Many scholars have framed the movement in different ways. For example, some view it as an opposition to the way in which the ruling party at the time, the Nationalist Party, aka the KMT, pushed the legislation through without a proper debate in the legislature. Meanwhile, others have framed this as a concern that Taiwan would become too economically dependent on mainland China. To dig deeper into this topic, we spoke to Brian, the editor of New Bloom magazine and a participant in the Sunflower Movement, about the reasons behind the protest. I think it's a combination, and it's actually really hard to kind of figure it out, like what, how this combination came about. For example, with ECFA or the CSSTA, with the CSSTA there are multiple layers of the Sunflower Movement. Like, some people were opposed to the way it was passed, that it was untransparent and undemocratic, and only that, they had no problem with the agreement itself. Then there were people, which I think was most people, they were opposed to the agreement because it was with China and because it was passed through undemocratic means. And then there's a third layer, which is the more politically left layer, which is, you know, opposition to free trade on the basis of free trade, you know, being a policy that's neoliberal and so forth. Um, so, you know, there are different people that have different, you know, of those three layers, people are kind of stuck to different things. Um, but, you know, in this way, it actually synthesized together a lot of things. You know, one was the fact that Taiwanese are very concerned with China these days. Uh, the other is that, you know, KMT rule, the staff with it has been growing. Uh, the KMT, which was once authoritarian, sometimes really wants to reclaim its authoritarian past, and that, that kind of came out very clearly. So these things came together, and it's actually kind of hard to separate out. But, you know, a lot of it mixed together, I think, uh, the overall question of independence and unification, along with domestic questions of, you know, dissatisfaction against the eight years of KMT government, in which, you know, there was retrenchment law of social issues, in which, you know, government was not conducted in a, in a way that made many citizens feel like they had really a say in you know, what should theoretically be a democracy. So. In our conversation with Brian, we could really see how the Sunflower Movement was mobilized by several economic, political, and even ideological factors. And while some of the discontent was fueled by international concerns, other protesters and activists were riled up over domestic grievances. This kind of reminds me of what we were talking about last time on Sealed's battle to protect and uphold the tenets of democracy in Japan. A strong motivation behind both the formation of Sealed's and the Sunflower Movement was to stand up to strong government forces that wanted to implement things that perhaps the population had a different opinion on, like the Abe administration wanting to revise Article 9 of Japan's constitution, and in this case, the KMT's implementation of the contentious trade agreement. But a key difference between Taiwan and Japan was what happened after the heated protest. Whereas SEALs had a harder time establishing a deeper and broader culture of political awareness to their peers, the Sunflower activists continued their efforts by transitioning into electoral politics. And keeping in mind the context that this generation grew up in, some of these activists-turned-politicians became quite celebrated in Taiwan. And now you have this cool and fresh batch of politicians, and they formed the so-called third force in Taiwan. This third force was basically a third option for young voters disinterested with the status quo, which, like Brian mentioned, was a political system dominated by traditional forces like the KMT on one hand, and on the other, where there was only really one main opposition party, the Democratic Progressive Party, aka the DPP, to respond to the KMT's ruling style. 
The most successful case of the Third Force was the creation of the new power party, the NPP, which includes pretty cool characters like Freddie Lim, who was actually part of a rock band before joining politics. The NPP ended up winning five seats in the legislature during the January 2016 election, and it became the third largest party. This officially meant that, with the backing of youth, these former activists and ex-rockers had become part of the formal political process. So there was this clear forward momentum building from the Sunflower Movement into the 2016 elections. And this was truly a moment that demonstrated how Taiwan's youth believed that they could make a change. And it was also where their efforts actually produced a tangible change in Taiwan's politics by creating these new political parties. In fact, they helped unseat the KMT from the leadership for the second time since 2000. And this re-election resulted in the first DPP majority government in Taiwan's history, as well as its first female president. So yeah, it was this young and restless generation that launched new and rising parties into the political rat race. And they managed to change the way politics are perceived in Taiwan. They shattered that notion of dirty politics and how it's just like a corrupt game reserved for old men. That's right. Move aside, Grandpa, and make way for the millennials. Some of our interviewees, like Jennifer, talked in detail about how they saw from their very own eyes how Taiwanese politics have developed over the decades. I think the last presidential election was the very first time I ever voted. And what my feeling was, there was a lot of political activism, especially um, I came back here, I made a lot of local Taiwanese friends. And and I also have a lot of um, Taiwanese American friends, and they're all suddenly gathering behind the candidates that they want. And they just... There's, there's this sudden like political activism that I just felt really touched by and, and it was it was actually just tangible everywhere. And yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised because um, the Taiwan I used to know before I left for the US was more of a, and, and especially when I was younger, was more of a, you know, leave the politics to the politicians. And in my impression as a young child, uh, especially, the politicians were all, you know, old. Most of them were men. They usually talked about things I didn't understand. You know, they're talking about business and, you know, oh, going overseas. And this thing about China, I didn't understand any of it. But then suddenly, you know, 10, 15 years later, you know, every, everyone's suddenly, you know, realizing that these things are going to impact us because... We're all at the age where we're going to start work. We're going to go out and try to find our place in the world. And, you know, Taiwan's place in the world really affects our future. So, yeah, in recent years, it's been pretty cool to see that develop. And there's just so much passion behind these new and young candidates. One example is the story of Afi, a young woman who got involved in the 2016 elections as an electoral candidate in Taipei Xindian District. Afi was considered as being part of this new third force, representing the Green Party. When we talked to Afi, she explained to us how she grew up with the belief that if you don't engage in politics, you are essentially giving your rights away. Here's her story on why she decided to run as a political candidate in the 2016 elections. During the Sunflower Movement, I get a lot of chance, opportunity to be on the television show talking about why we occupy the legislature. So some people still recognize me as the, the one from the Sunflower Movement. So that's how they, I become a candidate. And then uh, for the campaign, um, 
Oh, it's already a low-cost campaign. I I start off from two hundred thousand Taiwanese dollar. That's the money that my mom wants to give me a wedding. The jiazhong. Yeah, it's a red envelope money from when I was little, and I my mom actually like saved the money for me and was going to use that money on the my, on my wedding. But I because I don't have any money, so I have to use that. Yeah, so I don't have a wedding now. <laughs> I have no wedding. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's how I started. Running at the age of only twenty four. Afi was one of the youngest candidates in the election, but at the end of the day, running a campaign is expensive, and in Afi's case, the cost was her wedding. And with much stronger, visible, and sophisticated campaigns against her, Afi didn't end up winning the election. But she did come in second place in her riding, receiving roughly 12% of the popular vote. Much of it coming from a younger following who had more access to her campaign through new media platforms like Facebook. This is still testament to a pretty significant shift in Taiwan's political scene, and there's still much room for it to grow from there. So, in the immediate post-sunflower period, we saw the rise of the third wave, championed by young voices who pushed for the election, and the third wave even won some seats in the parliament. But now that the heat of all this has died down, what's the situation for young activists today? That's a good question. Something that I was also thinking about while we were in Taiwan. Because on the surface, it seems that the dynamics between politics and activism has simmered down since 2015, and this brings up an important question about how social movements can maintain their momentum. In many ways, the momentum of the sunflower movement was carried off the streets and into the formal political process. So many of the lead activists that rallied crowds ended up launching their careers as politicians by running in Taiwan's elections, and by virtue of now entering the system, you're now playing within the rules of the established game. And no longer just as an activist, but also as a politician, and I guess that inevitably dampers, or maybe more apt, it changes the tempo and nature in which the push for change can manifest itself. And with the DPP in power, many of these activists now have friends and allies within government, so old methods of mass protest won't have the same meaning or effect as before. Basically, methods of engagement have changed, and activists sought new ways to keep the support of the majority, such as bolstering Taiwan's third force in the political process. And this story of youth activism and the post-social movement split between activists and politicians is also occurring in Hong Kong. It's a similar experience of having young activists become engaged with their political system through the creation of political parties, some of which are now also part of the legislature there. There's two common sayings used to connect Hong Kong and Taiwan. The first is "Today's Hong Kong is tomorrow's Taiwan," which highlights Taiwan's democratic system. Likewise, the reverse phrase "Today's Taiwan is tomorrow's Hong Kong" has also been used as a nod towards the one country, two systems principle that Hong Kong is currently based upon. But regardless of where one stands on these two sayings. One undeniable link between the two societies is, again, through a segment of youth that feels more compelled to speak up about the state and the fate of their societies. In fact, like we mentioned earlier about that generational divide—you know, the one between millennials who are born and raised in Taiwan versus the parents and grandparents' generations who may have a stronger connection to China—the same goes for the younger generation in Hong Kong. So it's a generation of people who have grown up within a specific time period and under a different political era in Hong Kong. Mind you, 
Hong Kong's handover back to China from the UK did not happen until 1997. So I'd say we can really easily map out a generational divide or even a temporal cutoff in the attitudes between youth and their parents' generation. Megan and Stanley, students at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, shared with us their thoughts on how political views are shifting across various generations in Hong Kong. I think young people are more willing to express their political views nowadays because in the past, our parents used to tell us, like, don't discuss about politics at the table because that might ruin relationships. But now people are kind of like accepting the fact that your political views is part of you. So they are, and they really know what's their responsibility as a citizen. They have to vote and um, they're more aware of what what's happening in the political area or the field is actually related to our future. So they're more willing to express themselves because they want to have control on their future. Most of students don't care about politics, or very little of them. They're just led by a few students. But like since 2012, and especially uh, Umbrella Movement, more college students start to engage in politics and other political engagement. So it's like an enlightenment after the Umbrella Movement. More college students or more teenagers are starting to get involved in politics. So having heard these similar concerns and changes in attitudes across both Taiwan and Hong Kong's millennials, we spoke to an author and scholar, Jiang Tiezhi, who told us that men who spearheaded the Umbrella Movement, including Joshua Wong, who some considered to be the poster boy for the event, actually drew a fair bit of inspiration from their peers in Taipei. Yeah, the Sunflower Movement became a fundamental point of inspiration that started the Umbrella Movement later that year in September 2014. The goal here was to attain universal suffrage, so trying to make tomorrow's Hong Kong more similar to what today's Taiwan has in terms of elections. But in this case, of course, it's to be able to vote for Hong Kong's chief executive. There was also a similar forward momentum that resulted from both the Sunflower and the Umbrella movements. But the difference is that while it was the relative success of the protest that empowered youth to enter politics in Taiwan, in Hong Kong, it was the ultimate inability of the Umbrella movement to achieve its goals of universal suffrage that pushed some of these young Hong Kong activists to take other measures. They ended up forming more political parties, hoping to take their voices off the streets and into the legislature if they could get elected. One wave of youth-based parties that formed after the Umbrella Movement include the Hong Kong National Party, Hong Kong Indigenous, and the Youngspiration Party, all of which who run on the ideology known as localism. The idea of localism has a stronger opinion towards Beijing and has a stronger stance on Hong Kong's self-determination. In other words, these youth want to shake up the one country, two systems principle and give Hong Kong more room to make their own decisions about the fate of their society with less influence from China. Stanley explained to us how localism began to gain traction amongst millennials through a by-election in Hong Kong's parliament, which is called the Legislative Council, or LegCo for short. Since like, localism starts to uh, be active last year because of the by-election of the New Territory East LegCo, uh, the college student, Edward Learn from Hong Kong U, and she started to come up for this, this by election and he gained like almost like 50,000 votes. So it's like quite a handful of amount of votes that is recognizable for, for the rise of localism. And I think he's supported by most, most university students and college students because like for teenagers after Umbrella Movement, we're trying to looking for a new hope. I would learn here at that time stands for the hope. I remember being in Hong Kong at the time of the 2016 New Territories by-election. 
This story really became one of the first examples of a localist candidate gaining so much traction in an election. And although Edward Leung didn't win, there was a wave of optimism amongst many Hong Kong youth who were adamant on voting for change. So if anything, one of the end results of the 50,000 votes sent this message. It was possible for a youth voice to be heard. However, with a stronger stance against Beijing, things haven't always been easy for Hong Kong's more fiery localists. Last year, there was a huge controversy that broke out surrounding two young politicians from the localist Youngspiration Party. The two had actually managed to win seats in the LegCo, and one would have even been the youngest woman in parliament as well. But even before they could warm their seats, they were pretty dramatically expelled from the LegCo. So during the official swearing-in ceremony, all LegCo members are required to take an oath to swear allegiance to the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region and to China. Instead of reciting the oath, the pair decided to replace keywords with, well, let's say some pretty colorful language that absolutely did not sit well with the authorities. And it sparked a lot of debate and criticism over the merits and goals of localism as an ideology. When asked whether or not this incident would affect youth opinions on localism, Megan gave us her thoughts. It's quite an isolated incident because I think it's not really about the whole ideology. It's really some kind of action of like personal choice of action. So I don't really think maybe it has a certain effect that some pe- some young people will think that this group of people is quite ridiculous. But people still agree with their whole theory, and for me, I do think that that incident was quite ridiculous. But I don't disagree with their. Ideology, and I think young people feel like during the Legco election and the district council election, they have done their part because they have voted. So they're actually they voted the people they trust, and some of them got seats. There's been debates about what is the best way for young localists to engage with Hong Kong politics, causing a divide in opinion. Localism has been popular with some youth who want more aggressive means of action, but it's not as popular with others who support more traditional mainstream democratic parties. And their ideas of peace and nonviolence. Right. So other youth-based political parties have formed as well, and some take a slightly different route from the localists by promoting what they call democratic self-determination. Joshua Wong and Nathan Law's Democisto Party is an example of this, and their aim is to protect Hong Kong's autonomy, but within the one country, two systems principle. So unlike the case study we mentioned earlier, Nathan Law ended up being one of the more successful stories during the 2016 LegCo elections. He actually won a seat and stayed there, and became the youngest member in parliament. There is clearly a resounding consensus among Hong Kong's growing political body of active youth that there is a need for the generation to speak up and to make their voices heard in the important decisions surrounding the future of Hong Kong. And naturally, their own lives and identities as Hong Kong citizens. But there seems to be a split in how this future is envisioned. Let's hear from another university student, Ruby, for a bit more on post-umbrella ideologies. I think、uh, Hong Kong is very—you can say—even more separated because of the localism, but also kind of more united. Like around、uh, at the age of ours, like at、uh, youth, we all believe in—not、uh, all, but most of us think that this is the. A better way, because we think that the traditional ways are no longer actually helping us into more democratic society. But 
this leads to a more separated society because the older ones think that our ways are too radical and not actually appropriate. It's become quite evident in Hong Kong and in Taiwan that there is a generational divide between students and their parents. For those older Hong Kongers and Taiwanese who have lived their career lives before the 80s and the 90s, they regard politics as an old men's club and hold on to this idea of activists as troublemakers who are disruptors to social stability. But for young people, there doesn't seem to be much social, economic, or political stability left for them. And these new ways of engaging with politics have been a critical way through which youth are trying to make sense of their societies and claim a stake in their society's futures. Right, so be it through more formal channels like we mentioned of creating new political parties, youth have also begun to carve out a fun space for political engagement. And this has even given rise to what Brian has dubbed an activist subculture. Among young people, I think it is kind of like, sometimes I termed it like an activist subculture in one of my articles. Because I think a lot of it does seem kind of subcultural. I mean, there's like cafes people hang out in, you know, such as this one. Or, especially during the sun farm, there are ways people dress wearing black and, you know, so you could see people on the subway and they would have like a backpack with like ribbons of, you know, and stickers and their laptops or whatever. And, you know, you would know this person like an activist. I think that's probably the case with activism or youth activism across the world in which, you know, young people adopt certain, you know, like signifiers to mark the part of this kind of culture. But, you know, especially the case in Taiwan. So this activist subculture is like a crossover between politics and popular culture. At the end of the day, this is a subculture, so we can't expect everyone to be totally involved in this. But at the same time, you can even see how this activist subculture has even spilled over into mainstream culture. One of the best examples is through music, or more specifically, through the rise of indie music. One of our interviewees, an author by the name of Zhang Tiezhi, told us about a pretty big case where two indie songs with very overtly political messages managed to steal the spotlight away from some of the biggest Taiwanese stars, including Zhou Lin Tsai. And for anyone who knows Taiwanese pop, you know this is a big deal. Not queen of pop Zhou Lin! Oh yes, queen of pop no more Zhou Lin. Ouch. Okay. I'm just going to pretend you did not even say that. But anyways, here's Zhang for more on this. Actually, indie music has gradually become more and more getting into mainstream right now. I mean, I'll give you several examples. One, the biggest mu- music award in Taiwan is called Golden Melodies Award, Jing Shui Jiang. Okay, and this year, the, the song of the year, oh, it's not Adele or you know, Beyonce, it's actually from the Aboriginal singer called Su Ming. And the song was deal with the social issues about Aboriginal. Okay. And he, he actually sent a song using his mother language, so Yuan Zhu Ming the Mu Yu. So no one understands it actually. And, 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 and actually, last year, 2015, I mean 2015, Su Ming, I don't know, I describe it as 2016. And early, earlier year, 2015, is also the, the best song of the year is also won by an indie band called Mie Huo Qi. I guess you might know that his song is called Dao Yu Tian Guang. The song actually was born in the Sunflower movement. And you know his competitor is Zhang Huimei, Tai Yiling, all the biggest stars. So it is such a big change. Just like in Hong Kong, right? The 10 years, 10 years, won the Xiangang Qingxiangjiang. So I'm describing this, you know, the, the indie music has become hu- more and more huge in, in Taiwan. So what Zhang described here is how two indie songs managed to win Best Song of the Year in the Golden Melody Awards, which is Taiwan's equivalent of the Grammys. The song that won in 2014 was called Island Sunrise by the group Fire X, which was inspired by the Sunflower Movement. On their official video, the song was described as one that, quote, flawlessly declares an attic faith for democracy and the necessity for fighting against the corrupt government, end quote. 
And the one that won in 2016 was called Aka Pisawad by singer Su Ming. And what's even more interesting to note is that this song, as Zhang mentioned, spoke about Aboriginal rights and social issues that we as Canadians can probably relate to in some way or another here, especially given the debate surrounding the whole idea of celebrating Canada 150 this year. Or even at the end, Zhang makes a quick reference to the Hong Kong indie film 10 Years. Set in the year 2025, this dystopian film centers around the question of local identity and the vision of Hong Kong's future under China. And even though the film ruffled a couple of feathers on the mainland, it still managed to win Best Film at the 2016 Hong Kong Film Awards. And I guess, in all of these cases, we as Canadians can probably relate in one way or another to these questions about not only our own identities, but also this question of national identity. Right, and again, questions about the future become extra pressing at so called coming of age moments in one's life, and especially so when stress levels are high. Be it the stress of competing for that last good job in society, buying a house in an already crowded and oversaturated real estate market, and in the context of the East Asian school system, the immense stress of college entrance exams. And speaking of exams, it was actually during the regular exam period when the South Korean student protests against the now former President Park really exploded onto the scene and shook the nation and beyond. So stay tuned for our next episode when we explore how youth were and continue to be in the center of South Korea's struggle against corruption, equal opportunities, for their future, and even against diamond spoons. Wait, what diamond spoons? Guess you'll have to find out next time. This podcast was supported by the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada's Postgraduate Research Fellowship Program. Songs featured in this episode include Corporate Technology and Corporate Innovative by Scott Holmes. Sound effects provided by Digifish Music at freesound.org. Special thanks in this episode to Jennifer, Brian, William, Afi, Zhang Tiezhi, Stanley, Megan, Ruby, and the rest of our friends and participants who shared their insight and took the time to be interviewed. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers. And do not necessarily represent the views of the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada.